A man known in church history as St. Augustine was born in 354 A.D. in what is today Algeria. In his classic work called Confessions, he said that before he left for Carthage, which is in Tunisia today, at age 17 to study for three years, his mother warned him earnestly, don't commit sexual sin, don't commit fornication. But he wrote, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. So it didn't sound like it was going to work for him to avoid that. My real need was for you, my God, and who are the food of my soul. I was not aware of this hunger. So he lived immorally up until age 29 when he moved to Rome to teach. There he began listening to the preaching of Bishop Ambrose. He says, I began to sense the truth of what he said, though only gradually. Eventually, Augustine knew that he was held back from Christ, not by anything intellectual, but by sexual lust. I was still held firm in the bonds of woman's love. At age 32, he was tormented by his inability to overcome his immorality. In the midst of his weeping, he was under a fig tree one day, just weeping. Augustine heard the voice of a child sing, Take it and read, take it and read. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up telling myself this could only be a divine command from God to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So Augustine opened his letters to St. Paul, Paul's book of letters, flipped open his pages and rested his eyes on Romans 13, 13 to 14. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He says... I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. He wrote, For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. At last, his mother's prayers and his awareness that God was pursuing him brought him to faith in Christ. He became one of the greatest theologians of the church. He wrote these famous words in his confessions. You've made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Augustine's conversion illustrates what we'll see in today's text last week and and this week as well, that the Father seeks people to worship him in spirit and truth through Jesus, who exposes our sin so we will see our need to receive from him the eternal life-giving spirit. The Father seeks people to worship him in spirit and truth through Jesus, who exposes our sin so we will see our need to receive from him the eternal eternal life-giving spirit. Last week, Greg preached from the first 15 verses, and I'm just going to cover that real quickly again just for review. Jesus leaves Judea for Galilee, so from the, north to, from the south to the north. He had to pass through Samaria. He gets tired, sits by well, and a woman of Samaria comes to, to get water. Jesus says, give me a drink. Because of the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, she says, how is you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus says, if you knew the God's gift and who is asking for a drink right now, you would be asking him to give you living water. She can't believe he's saying this. How could he be greater than their father Jacob, their ancestor Jacob? All she can do is look upon him, his physical limitations. She says the well is deep and you have this, you have nothing to draw with. Where would you get this living water if you could, this living water? You can't be saying you're greater than our father Jacob, can you? 
She's not impressed with him to be making such claims. But this doesn't keep Jesus from continuing to press his offer of living water. He keeps after her for this gift. Everyone who drinks of this well water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. But the water that I will give him to him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It seems that now she somehow starts to see him as sincere anyway. She kind of starts going along with him, even though he's still very fixed on a physical level, a natural level. She says, okay, sir, give me some of this water so that I will not be thirsty and to save me the trouble of having to keep coming here to get water. Then in verse 16, Jesus says to her, go, call your husband, come here. So Jesus, knowing the truth about her immorality, knowing that she doesn't know the truth about him, tells her to go call her husband and come here. His purpose is not to shame her. He wants her to realize that he knows the truth about her. Yet he wants to give her the gift of living water that will satisfy her thirst she's been seeking to satisfy in relationships with men. So he graciously draws her into seeing this by how he speaks to her, by asking to see her true need by making this simple request. So the woman answers him, I have, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So she answers with part of the truth. Jesus commends her for speaking correctly as far as not having a husband. Her life and her sin is now exposed, which is exactly what the water of salvation was intended to quench. People can become experts in telling partial truths to cover their sin. Jesus affirms she is right in saying she has no husband since she has had five husbands and the man she lives with now is not her husband. What she says is true. She knows he has found her out. He has exposed her sin and yet she can see he isn't bringing this up to condemn her. But how could he possibly know this about her? How could he possibly know that this is what she's been doing? In seeking to draw people to Jesus, if we have knowledge of their sin or we are aware of their warped worldview or beliefs, we too should gently, gently, graciously bring it out, let them know that we know about that. We are not serving Jesus by trying to shame people. We win nothing if we just trap them and expose their sin as if we take joy in shaming them. At the same time, we don't want to so minimize sin that people will not thirst for the living water that only Jesus can give for their cleansing and new life. Jesus didn't come to save us from lack of purpose. He didn't come to save us from lack of fulfillment. Jesus didn't come to save us from low self-esteem. He came to save us from sin. So we're not loving people well if we don't help them see that this is why Christ had to die for us. Our sins rendered us so guilty that they so deserve God's just judgment that in order for us not to be cast from his good presence forever... God's judgment for our sins had to be poured out on Christ on the cross in order for God to justly forgive us. You might be saying, well, doesn't everybody already know they sin? I mean, you ask people, oh, well, I know I'm not perfect, I make mistakes. So why should we bring it up what they already know? Well, when we assume the truths of the gospel, including why we need the gospel, we're in danger of losing the gospel. This is why Jesus said in regards to the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, don't forget what I did to save you. Don't forget why you need to be saved. Don't ever forget that. We so easily can flatter ourselves that we're getting better and better, and we really don't have that need for that anymore. I was reading an article by a pastor who said last summer he went on a sabbatical. 
And on sabbatical, he went to Bible teaching churches who, who taught the gospel, who were centered on Christ, who, who believed the, the scriptures. But he said not once did anybody bring up, any pastor in their preaching, bring up sin or the reason what it was or why we needed to be saved from it. Not one time. In trying not to be harshly condemning, in talking about sin, we must not assume everybody already gets it and avoid talking about it. Do you think for a minute you already fully have heard everything you need to know about your sin, that you already have it down, you've already repented of all your sin, you don't need to hear any more about it? I know I don't. I continue to need to hear about my sin and why I need to repent. And it's part of how God grows us in seeing what our ongoing need is. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So when we correct people, we should be, as God's servant, correcting people, but with gentleness, God is the one who gives repentance. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Jesus is pursuing her heart by getting her to see her need. How she's been trying to quench her spiritual thirst with men, relationships with men. She had never identified her relationships this way. She never thought of it this way. So many, so many people are trying to do what this woman is doing. They try to fill a thirst that can only be satisfied with what only Jesus can give, the Holy Spirit who becomes in them a well springing up to eternal life. They're trying to quench a thirst that can only be satisfied with the eternal life-giving spirit. Instead, when people try to satisfy a desire that can only be satisfied with true life, with something that instead drains them of life, they become addicted and habitually pursue what they think will be life-giving. Because it robs them of life, they get decreasing satisfaction the more they indulge. So they need more and more and more to get the same effect. So I have to ask of you and me, what are, our, what are we pursuing or what is our habitual go-to to satisfy us? to quench our thirst or satisfy our desire that only the eternal life-giving spirit can satisfy. We may have never thought of it that way, but what do I believe I must have to find satisfaction in life? What is life to me? What, what do I think I need in order to really have life? Where do I find life? What do I feel I must have for life to be worth living? What am I willing to sacrifice almost anything in order to have? What am I habitually devoted to? To find that I need more and more and more to get the same level of satisfaction I used to get get from it. Not not only simple things, but even good things. What are you looking for? Are you looking for your husband or wife to be life for you? Your children, grandchildren, money, the approval of people, work, food, sex, alcohol, the latest social justice cause? You will never satisfy a thirst for eternal life with pursuits or people that cannot give it. We all have it. We're designed by God for eternity and to have life. And that's what we long for. You will only find satisfaction in receiving living water, that is the eternal life-giving spirit, by faith in Jesus. Of course, now it's time for a Lord of the Rings illustration. So Gollum thinks the ring is life. The precious is life. And it's draining the life right out of him, turning him into something gross and ungodly. Jesus says, I, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. 
I came that they may have life and have that abundantly. Pursuing life outside of Jesus is costly. He gives eternal life abundantly and freely. Revelation 22.7 says, it's one of the last verses in the Bible, so it's amazing. Get to the end of the Bible, what does it say? Well, Jesus says, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Are you thirsty for eternal life? It's free, and Jesus gives it abundantly. But you have to feel the thirst. If you're plugging the thirst up with things in this world, you may never feel the thirst. Verse 19, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. She concludes the only way this Jewish stranger could possibly know her history with men is he must be a prophet. She immediately changes the subject from her sin to their religious and theological differences. Many people see this as a, as a diversion. She's trying to get them off subject. It's easier to talk about theology than to just talk about my sin, which it is always, isn't it? You talk about religion than sin. But since she sees he's a prophet of some sort, she may be bringing this up because she really wants to know what this big theological difference is between Jews and Samaritans. So she's in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Not so fast, we haven't finished talking about your sin yet. He doesn't say that to her. He goes along with her apparent change of subject. Why? Why does he? Well, at least part of the reason is because the issue of true worship has everything to do with your moral choices. It's very, very relevant to talk about this subject. Even though she's probably means to get off subject, this is a good one to go on to. Because who and how you worship will shape your heart and will create what you hunger and thirst for. In other words, your spiritual appetites are created by how and what you worship, who you worship. So actually, whatever her intent was, this is quite fitting subject to discuss. Jesus doesn't rebuke her for trying to deflect his addressing her sin. So what does Jesus say? Well, verse 21, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So when Jesus speaks of his coming hour, we've seen prior that he's referring to his death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension. Whenever he says his hour, that's code word for my death on the cross and then his resurrection and ascension. He doesn't know that, she doesn't know that's what he's talking about, but when Jesus finishes his mission, geographic location will have zero relevance to worshiping the Father. Location of worship becomes totally irrelevant once he finishes his work on the cross and raises again from the dead. Jesus speaks of worshiping the Father. It's rare for the Jews to refer to God as Father. It would have sounded even more strange to the Samaritans to refer to God as Father. So why does he speak of God this way? Well, one reason is because he came to reveal more about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But another reason, I think, is because she speaks of our fathers. She looks to their founding fathers as the authority for how you, where you worship. Jesus says, the issue in true worship isn't the right place established by fathers, but worshiping God as Father the right way, which, as we will learn from what Jesus says, you can only do through the Son. And it's ironic that the Samaritan woman stood beside the well, which is neither in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim, standing right next to the true temple of God. So Jesus said, back in chapter 2, said, I am the true temple. He said, destroy this temple. They said, show us a sign for what, what you're doing. He says, 
destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. So Jesus claimed, even though they didn't understand at the time, to be the God's true temple. His body, his resurrected body would be the true place of worship. If there's a place, it's Jesus' resurrected body. She's right next to the true temple of God. She doesn't even know it. In verse 22, he says, you worship that what, what you do, he, you worship what you do not know. We worship that what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is setting this, the Jews and Samaritans in sharp contrast. He comes straight out and says to the woman, you Samaritans don't know what you worship. You don't know what you're worshiping. Jesus, do you really think you're going to win her over by telling her, speaking that way? Should you say to your neighbor who's of different religion, hey, you guys don't know what you worship. Is that, what, is that a good witnessing way to share your, to share your faith? Well, Jesus says this to her because the Samaritans have rejected the fuller revelation of God beyond the five books of Moses that would make clear that the coming Messiah had to come from the Jews. He would have to be a descendant of David. That's one reason why Jesus says salvation is from the Jews because he's from the Jews. But not only because Jesus is from the Jews, but because the rest of the Old Testament beyond the books of Moses advanced God's unfolding plan of salvation. So the whole rest of the Bible that they left out talks a whole lot more about God's saving plan, and they don't get it. They had part of God's revelation, but by rejecting the whole of God's revelation, their worship was wrong because their understanding of God's plan of salvation was wrong. So you can't reject any part of God's saving revelation and worship God acceptably. In our day, some people pick and choose what they accept from the 66 books of the Bible as true as God's true revelation. Some do it as scholars who presume they have scholarly or historical or scientific knowledge to say, this is not God's word, this is just the writings of of people just like any other religious writing is. Others are not scholars, but they can't accept scripture as God's word because they can't accept some of its teaching. It contradicts modern sensibility, so they they reject it because it doesn't fit what they think can possibly be true. They keep the parts they like, reject the parts they don't. But the Bible is one unfolding revelation of God. You can't pick and choose. You can't leave out parts of it and acceptably worship God and, and trust the whole. To reject parts of God's revelation ultimately undermines trust in the whole, leading to d- deterioration of faith. There are some people today who in the past were effective teachers and leaders for Christ's church who began questioning then rejecting parts of God's word. Some of these now openly reject the faith they used to teach. Others think they have discovered the true faith, but they redefine biblical truth to suit their desires. And point for point, they deny orthodox Christian teaching. So, for example, today there's a popular author. He wrote a fiction book a few years ago. But he came out with a book that says, Lies We Believe About God. And actually, the, what he calls lies about God are actually historic Christian truth that we have believed for centuries. And he's rejecting it all and saying this is the truth about God. So when you start rejecting parts of God's truth, you end up rejecting the whole eventually. Verse 23, Jesus says, The hour is coming, but this time he adds, And now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, whatever it means to worship the Father in spirit and truth will result from and be focused on Christ's death on the cross is a resurrection and ascension. So this hour is coming again, always refers to Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, it's now here. So be very clear. Jesus says, true worship of God will only occur when the hour comes, which is in 
John's gospel clearly refers to the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. True worship must be centered on his saving, eternal, life-giving work. And yet Jesus says in some sense the hour has already come when true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and truth. How the hour already come? Well, Jesus, the true temple of God, was there. He is both the one who can receive worship. As Jesus will later say, you, you can't honor the Father without honoring me. Even as you honor the Father, you have to honor me. Honor me as you honor the Father. So you can't claim to worship God, the Father, God, without worshiping Jesus. So he's there as the one who is God's temple, who can receive worship, and, and the one who is the way to the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father. But what does he mean when he says worship in spirit and truth? What is that about? What is worship in spirit and truth? Well, first, Jesus says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In other words, the Father is not waiting for people to find their way to him. Many people think that that's all religion is, people trying to find their way to God. And whatever works for them is fine. But what we see in John is that God the Father seeks people by revealing himself through his word and spirit. He didn't just wait. He wasn't just waiting for people to find him, leave it to people to come up with creative ways to worship him. Later, Jesus will say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father is the seeker. He's the one who pursues people. Truth be known, at this very time, the Father is seeking her through Jesus. You might remember this term back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. There was these things called seeker services. Churches would hold what they call seeker services. Services designed to help people who are seeking God uh, feel more comfortable. Unfortunately, the Bible says that people don't seek God. No one seeks God. No one seeks for God on his own terms. Even when people think they seek for God, they always get it wrong because they have wrong conceptions of God. Jesus gives the reason why true worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and truth. Because God is spirit. That is, he has no material body. God is not a man, not even a really big man. He's spirit, pure spirit. So therefore, we have to relate to him from our spiritual nature. For God to be spirit means he has life in himself. He is the living God. All life comes from him. He breathes life into us. He breathed life into the first man. Man became a living soul by God's breath of life. So God is spirit, and we have, to, we have to be alive to him. So to worship God in spirit and truth means the worshiper must be spiritually alive. Spiritually dead people can't do anything toward God. He must be born from above, like Jesus says back in John chapter 3, verse 3. He must be born of water and the spirit, be cleansed and have the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says back in chapter 3, verse 5 to have spiritual life so they can perceive and respond to the spiritual realities of God and his kingdom. And if he has spiritual life, only then can he also worship God in truth. That is, true worshipers are those who worship in knowledge and of and conformity to God's word, made flesh, Jesus, who is the truth, the one who reveals the Father. True worshipers must be children of God, as Jesus says back in, John wrote back in chapter 1, who have been born of God, who have believed in the name of his Son, because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit of spirit, he says this back in chapter 3. So if all you are is flesh, you don't have spirit, you're spiritually dead, you need the Holy Spirit to give you spiritual life. Spirit and truth, then, means you must be born of God through the Spirit of God by faith in the Son of God. And truth, you must believe in Christ as the one who God sent to reveal the truth of who God is, as a way to God. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, he said. So you have to know Jesus that way, and you have to be born through the Spirit by that faith. 
This truth that only those who come to God through Jesus Christ are accepted by the Father and become his true worshipers is becoming more and more unpopular as time goes on. In fact, if you affirm this truth, you're considered a hater. You'll hear criticisms such as, how can you say that worshiping God any other way but the way you do is right? That's arrogant. That's your hater. How can you say that the worship of a sincere Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or any other religion is not acceptable to God just because they don't seek God through Jesus? Well, no one's no one wants to be thought of a hater. I don't want to be thought of as a hater. Or a narrow-minded bigot. In a culture such as ours where we don't think any religious truth can be true for all people in all time and all places, more and more people are going to be jettisoning this truth. That all that matters is personally... All that matters for religion is it personally meaningful to you and is it helping you to be a better person? That's all that matters. But we don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God because it personally is meaningful to us, much less because it gives us an elite status of those who are, in, who are with God and others are not. We believe it because the scriptures reveal Christ as equal with God, the very revelation of God in human flesh. Jesus is the truth. whose death and resurrection alone could deliver us from sin and death and give us eternal life with him. Christian worship is done in no other temple than the new temple, which is Jesus Christ. He is the new temple. It's done through the crucified and resurrected body of Jesus Christ. True worship is Christ-centered and cross-centered, since the cross creates true worshipers, a new humanity from all ethnic backgrounds, not Jew or Samaritan or any other background singly, but from all ethnic backgrounds. Since true worship of the Father is not determined by being in a special holy location, but as a result of being made spiritually alive by the Spirit of God, through faith in God's Son, who is the truth. We should not picture heaven as being like being in a big church building, where we just have an endless church service going on and on and on. You need to read the end of the book again. At the end of the book, you see this, Revelation twenty-one twenty-two, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. Worship will be the air we breathe in the, the heavenly city. It will be a city where we constantly enjoy the glory of God everywhere. Well, the woman says to him in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, he is, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus' words lead her to think of the coming Messiah. She says that when he comes, he will explain everything. You wonder if she was suspecting Jesus could be him. Jesus tells her what she needed to know most, that the one speaking to her is he, the Messiah. He freely says this to the Samaritan woman, but what he wouldn't say publicly amongst the Jews since Messiah was such a loaded term, politically and, and, and militarily in those days. So he just comes out and says, hey, you're speaking to him right now, the Messiah. The Father seeks people, so here's our truth. The father had sought this Samaritan woman to become his true worshiper. Through his son, who exposed her sin, she would see her need for living water, for eternal life, that only he could give. In other words, the father seeks people to worship him in spirit and truth through Jesus, who exposes our sin, so we will see our need to receive from him the eternal life-giving spirit. The father seeks people to worship him in spirit and truth through Jesus, who exposes our sin, so we will see our need to receive from him the eternal life-giving spirit. In fact, this is what the Father is doing right now as we speak. He's seeking us. 
So who might the Father be seeking through you as, as an ambassador for Christ to become his true worshiper? Who in your life are you representing Christ to, who God is seeking through you? Or have you not yet responded to Jesus' seeking? And is he seeking you? Have you responded yet to the Father who seeks you to become his true worshiper? Have you seen your need to receive from Jesus the eternal life-giving spirit? One of the ways we worship the Father in spirit and truth is by partaking and sharing in his son's new covenant meal, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, where we confess that our salvation is received only by faith in his body as God in human flesh, crucified, buried, resurrected, and his blood shed for the forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. So if you believe that, if you know that the only way you could be saved is through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, through his body and his shed blood, then this meal is for you. If you don't yet believe that, then this meal is not for you yet. We hope you will respond to Jesus' invitation to embrace him as a savior, to embrace him as the truth, to embrace him as the one who is God's true temple. So we're going to make this available to you now. And today, the way we're going to do it is this. We have cups and bread in plates. So I want you to come forward during the, during the next song and get a cup and get a piece of bread and go back to your seat and consider what Christ has done for you. And then we'll take it all together. You'll be instructed to take it all together at the same time. So we'll do that now. We'll pray and get ready to receive God's, Jesus' invitation to us Lord's table. Father, we thank you that Christ, who is our rock and our redeemer, the one who has come in flesh, died on the cross to purchase us from sin's slavery, to grant us freedom from sin, to grant us forgiveness, who became a person, a man for us, so that he could die in our place and be raised again so that we could have life through him, so we could worship you in spirit and truth. We thank you, Father, for that great privilege. We ask that now, as, as we receive these elements together, we'll reflect and remember again and again what it cost you, your great love to reach out to us through your Son and rescue us from sin and death through his body and blood. We wouldn't have come up with that plan, but it's your plan to call to yourself true worshipers that way. That because you seek us, because you expose our sin to show us our real thirst is for eternal life through your spirit. So we give you thanks, Father, for this great gift, the gift of living water, the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, your Son. As we receive these elements together, we're, we're so, again, thankful for you and all you've accomplished for us to freely drink from water of life without cost, to freely receive eternal life through him. We pray these things in Jesus' name.